At, at this point, we normally do our little sermon intro video, but I'm going to be your uh, intro video uh, this morning. Uh, we have a, a, a wonderful privilege to have uh, an individual who uh, helped uh, bring Living Water into existence, who, uh, when we started Living Water, was in third grade. Is that right, Mike? Fourth grade. So come on up. This is my son, Mike. He's going to uh, share with us today. Normally, when I would put him to work here when he was younger, it was like cutting grass or pulling weeds or dragging brush and stuff like that. So uh, this is at least a cleaner process. I don't know whether it's any easier or not, but uh, let me pray for Mike. Lord God, I thank you for for Michael. Uh, Lord, I am so incredibly proud of him. And thank you for the call that you have on his life and on uh, the life of his wife, Christina, down in Ecuador for the great work that uh, you are doing through him as he ministers to pastors down there. And uh, Lord God, now as he uh, prepares to uh, share your word uh, with his family here in the States, I pray that, Lord God, you would be pleased, that that we would be blessed, that, that Mike would feel your presence. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, I'm, am I on? Okay. Bueno, hola a todos. Dios les bendiga. Uh, that is hello to everyone. May God bless you. Uh, good morning, Living Water Community Church. Uh, it is a, an immense privilege to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, as my father mentioned, my wife Christina and I have the privilege to serve as missionaries in Ecuador And uh, as my dad also shared, I have a long history in this church, and this is the church where I believe I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I was baptized in this church, and this church has been an immense source of support financially and through prayer to make our ministry in Ecuador possible. And so I'm extremely thankful. This is a very special Sunday for me, and thank you, Dad and elders, for entrusting me with this uh, immense responsibility of, uh, of sharing God's Word. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing on in our study of 1 Timothy, and I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. We are going to be studying 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20 this morning. Uh, I know that Evan did a fantastic job uh, last weekend giving us an introduction to the letter of 1 Timothy, the historical setting, the purpose, uh, but just to give us a bit of context for the text that we're going to be looking at today, I still would like to give us just a recap of the historical setting and context of 1 Timothy and why it was written. Uh, We know that the Apostle Paul wrote what we now have as the book or the letter of 1 Timothy. Uh, Paul wrote uh, this letter to Timothy. Uh, Timothy was a young man, uh, a disciple of the Apostle Paul, who served alongside Paul and learned from him in the gospel ministry. Timothy was essentially an apprentice of the Apostle Paul, following in his footsteps. They were involved in sharing the gospel together. They were involved in helping new Christians grow in their faith. And they were both involved in church planting and seeing the establishment of new communities of faith all throughout the first century world in that time. 
And when Paul wrote this letter to young Timothy, Paul was nearing the end of his physical life. And as a result, he was also nearing the end of his ministry. And he wanted to pass down written documents to instruct Timothy as a young pastor on how to structure the church of which he was to lead and how to defend this church against an infiltration of false teaching in, uh, in Timothy's church. Timothy was the pastor of a congregation in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus is a city in modern-day Turkey, And as Evan shared last week, there was an infiltration of false teaching and false teachers in this congregation. There was distortions or misuse of the Old Testament law by these false teachers. And there was much speculation and and wondering about matters that are not anywhere central to the Christian faith and powerless to save anyone from sin. And so Paul, he's writing this letter, instructing Timothy, charging Timothy to proclaim sound doctrine, the gospel message, defended against false teachers, and how to structure and develop a healthy biblical church. And so this letter would have been written around the year 62 uh, AD approximately. And so I ask you to stand to your feet. We're going to be reading God's word this morning. Again, we are in, uh, starting with verse 12 until chapter, or excuse me, until verse 20. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to open up our time in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, I give you thanks uh, for the immense privilege to be able, along with my wife, to enjoy some time uh, for what for me is my hometown, 
with a church that means so much to me, with my physical family, with my spiritual family. And Lord, I uh, ask for your help as I uh, interpret and uh, communicate your word this morning. God, I ask in the name of Jesus that you give me humility, Lord, that you are glorified, and that we all leave here transformed with the focus on how we can love you and please you in our lives. And so I ask for your help, and I pray this in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. He hated Christianity. He hated it. As a young boy growing up in Saudi Arabia in the 1970s, Abd al-Fadi was a devout Muslim who had nothing but hatred, contempt for anyone who did not share belief in the core tenets of the Muslim faith and the teachings of the prophet Muhammad. By the age of 12, Abd al-Fadi had memorized almost half of the Quran, which is the holy book of Islam, and he was hoping to have all of it memorized, all 114 chapters by the time he became a teenager. When the Soviet Union invaded the Central Asian nation of Afghanistan in 1979, even at his tender 15 years of age, Abd al-Fadi was planning to travel to that nation to fight and hopefully die as a martyr for his faith. Abd al-Fadi, in his own words, harbored intense Hatred for Christians, Jews, and all who refused Islam. He was willing to kill those who disagreed with him. Fortunately, his mother prevented him from traveling to Afghanistan in the late 1970s. And as a young man, Abd al-Fadi eventually moved to the United States, here, where he attended college. It was at college where he encountered a campus ministry called International Friendship Program where for the first time in his life he met, surprisingly, Christians who loved and cared for him in his transition to a new country and culture. He was very surprised because he hated Christians and he thought He believed that Christians had hate in their hearts towards Muslims. The Christians who befriended Abd al-Fadi planted a seed of interest in the stony soil of his heart. He continued on in his education, receiving a master's degree in engineering, and the Lord kept putting Christians in his life. In 2001, he could not resist. His curiosity was overtaking him. And he began to attend an evangelical Christian church to find out what the Christian God is all about. In that church, he heard the gospel message explicitly as the pastor systematically was preaching through the gospel of John. And Abd al-Fadi gave his life to Jesus Christ. The man who was once a devout Muslim. A man who once hated Christians with every fiber of his being. Placed his faith in Jesus Christ. He received the mercy and the grace of the Savior. And today, 
Abdel Fadi leads a ministry which shares the gospel message to Muslims. The story of Abdel Fadi teaches us that the Lord God gives mercy and grace to his enemies, to those who oppose him. And additionally, I believe that there are some similarities in the testimony of Abdel Fadi with the testimony of the Apostle Paul, which we are going to read a little bit about in our text. This is the same Apostle Paul who wrote to Timothy, instructing his young apprentice on how to pastor the church in Ephesus and defend it against false teachings. And we see that our verses this morning open up with a discourse in which Paul is giving thanks to the Lord for the mercy and the grace that was shown to him. Paul was extremely thankful. But in order to understand the weight of our text this morning, we need to understand who Paul was. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was once Saul of Tarsus. This Saul of Tarsus was not a devoutly religious Muslim, but a devoutly religious Jew, dedicated to the customs and the traditions of his ancestors, completely and utterly opposed to Jesus and the fledgling Christian movement. The book of Acts, uh, a historical narrative describing the birth and growth of the Christian church, describes Saul of Tarsus as a young man who sat by approving of the execution of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. We read about that in Acts chapter 7, verses 58. In fact, we read that the murderers placed their cloaks at the feet of Saul so they could more effectively, without interruption, throw stones at Stephen to kill him for his profession of faith in Jesus, the Messiah. From there, we see that Saul, he's going house to house to drag men and women, Christians, off to prison, Acts 8, 3. Can you imagine the scene? It conjures up images of these evil men raiding the homes of Christians at gunpoint, dragging them through the dust by their hair on the ground to imprisonment and eventual execution. It makes me think of ISIS, from several years ago, or North Korea, China, Soviet Russia in the 1950s until the 1980s. Amazingly, while traveling to Damascus to persecute even more Christians, Saul was overcome with hatred. He wanted to quell, squash the Christian movement. On his way to Damascus, Saul is confronted by the risen and glorified Jesus Christ. This is Acts 9, 1 through 10. Saul's life is completely transformed. As the overwhelming presence of the risen Christ and his authoritative words resulted in Saul's conversion. And not only his conversion to faith in Jesus the Messiah, but also being converted from one of the arch enemies of the church to one of its foremost missionaries, taking the gospel message and planting churches all over the known world in the first century with a desire to go to the limits of the first century world, planting churches and preaching the gospel. So that is who Paul was. 
Paul was Saul of Tarsus. And so now we're going to get into the text. In verse 12, we see that Paul expresses thanks to Jesus Christ, who appointed him to his service. The word in the original language translated as service is where we get the English word deacon. Uh, In the context of the local church, the office of deacon is used to uh, show someone who is willing to help, quote-unquote, behind the scenes. And in a variety of ways to meet physical, tangible, felt needs of people in the congregation. It's important to note that Paul was not a deacon in that technical sense, but he had an attitude of one who was overwhelmed with gratitude to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in any way possible, and no matter what the cost. Indeed, Paul suffered greatly in his service to the Lord. But Paul was thankful to the Lord because he remembered from where the Lord saved him. We see that he describes himself in verse 13 with certain terms that are not very flattering. We read that he describes himself in verse 13 as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, and as a violent man. Wow. These are not flattering descriptions. He is describing himself as one who spoke evil with his mouth against the one true God. He's describing himself as a man who pursued Christians and churches to do them harm. He's describing himself as one who was violent. You need to think to people who in this day and age hate Christians and do them harm. We need to think of people like radical Islamic terrorists, leaders in atheistic regimes like North Korea, radical Hindus in India, radical atheists that have this rabid hatred against Christianity. This is the type of person that Saul of Tarsus was. And there are numerous examples of people who have exhibited and exhibit the same attitude and behavior as that of Saul of Tarsus against Christians. This is the type of people that as Christians, we see them coming towards us and we want to go on the opposite side of the road to avoid them. But Saul of Tarsus, Paul, He received mercy. Mercy. Mercy is a rich term that essentially means that one does not receive what he or she deserves. An example of mercy is when a murderer receives pardon by not receiving the electric chair. That is an example of mercy. And Paul is saying that he received mercy he was, because he has acted in unbelief and he received mercy. And there's some who could try to say that Paul received mercy precisely because he acted in unbelief, but I don't believe that is likely. Rather, I think that Paul here, he's contrasting himself with the false teachers in the Ephesian church who were professing Christians and yet willfully involving themselves in error and in so doing were harming the church. The same false teachers that were at the church in Ephesus. Those men knew better. They had the truth of the gospel revealed to them in the church, but they rejected it with their false teaching and with their sinful lifestyles. Paul is saying here, I was legitimately guilty for my sinful actions. But my sinful actions took place because the light of the gospel had not shined through to my heart. 
But the Lord mercifully, mercifully saved me and brought me to the truth. Paul deserved the Lord's condemnation. He deserved the Lord's just punishment. Saul of Tarsus hated the church. He was pursuing the church. He deserved punishment and condemnation from the Lord, but he did not receive it. That's mercy. And then in verse 14, Paul shows us the other side of the coin, which is grace, mercy and grace. And grace is defined as unmerited favor. Grace is an undeserved gift. And in the context of salvation, which is what Paul is talking about here, the undeserved gift is the righteous and sinless life of Jesus Christ credited freely to those who trust on him in faith. When God the Father looks upon a person who has received grace in this sense, he does not look at the person's sinful past. He doesn't look at their current struggles with sin, but rather he looks at the righteousness of Jesus Christ covering over them in such a way that he's able to have fellowship and communion with that person. Um, a person who has helped me understand the concept of grace is a, there's a hip-hop artist named Shy Lin. He's from Philadelphia, about two hours east of here. He has a song entitled Saved by Grace. And he defines grace with a helpful acronym that I think sums up this definition of grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. And so verse 14 shows that this grace was abundantly, overwhelmingly, poured upon Paul along with the characteristic attributes of the Christian faith, of, of, of Christianity, which are faith and love. And all of this is building up to verse 15, which I believe is absolutely crucial to our understanding of this text this morning. And I'm going to read it aloud once more to highlight its importance. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I, of whom I am the foremost. Last week, as Evan helpfully was giving us an introduction to this letter, you studied verses 3 through 11, and you saw that Paul recorded a list of people for whom the law was created. Do you remember this list from last week? Lawbreakers, rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, murderers, adulterers, perverts, slave traders, etc. The good use of the law, as Evan pointed out last week, is to use it to demonstrate to mankind that we need salvation from outside of ourselves. As mankind, we are by nature enemies of the Lord God. We desire to live opposed to his ways by nature. We are powerless to keep the law perfectly and we cannot use it to obtain God's favor. And here is Paul. He's reflecting on his past life as a vicious, violent, rabid persecutor of the church. He's placing himself in the context of that list that we see in verses 9 through 11 and he is confidently saying, I am the worst of sinners. I was and am and complete and under need of mercy and grace. I was a sinner. I was a self-righteous man, an opponent 
of Christianity, trying to obtain the favor of the Lord by my own works, and violently opposing Jesus and his church in the process. Theologian Wayne Grudem defines sin for us in the following way. He defines sin as any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And as such, sinners are those who fail to conform to the moral law of God in act, in attitude, or nature. And it's important that we understand that this definition doesn't just focus on actions, but also on attitudes and nature. And these last two parts, attitudes and nature, have to do with the fact that sinful actions are a result, are the fruit of an interior bent towards wickedness that all of us have from our sinful hearts. We are not sinners because we sin, rather we sin because by nature we are sinners. And so Paul is saying, I am the worst of sinners. And I believe, brothers and sisters, that the core message of the gospel message is this, is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to live a life of perfect obedience to God the Father, a life that you and I could not live on our own. Jesus Christ came into the world to die as a sacrifice for the sin of humanity. That's the death that we deserve for our sin. And Jesus Christ rose again to demonstrate his victory over the sin and grave. And those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and his work receive the benefits of that work. Mercy, not receiving eternal separation from God the Father forever. And grace, the righteousness of God given to us as a gift which transforms us into people who want to please God with our lives and the people for whom God doesn't look at the old Michael Tyler Leonzo. He looks at me covered in the righteousness of his perfect sinless son, Jesus Christ. And I can have fellowship with God through in that way. So Paul says in verse 15, it comes to that climax that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners of whom he is the worst. And now in verse 16, Paul goes on to say that he the worst of sinners received mercy from the Lord for a specific purpose, to demonstrate the perfect patience of Jesus in salvation. In other words, Paul is putting himself forward as an example. He's saying, Jesus used me. He used me as an example to highlight the fact that if I can be saved, I, the worst of sinners, then anyone can be saved. Jesus was so patient with me, merciful with me, me, Saul of Tarsus, this violent, hate-filled persecutor of the church. And if he saved me so, then how much more can he and will he save those who trust on him in faith? And this reflection overwhelmed the apostle Paul formerly Saul of Tarsus, to declare words of praise to God the Father that we see in verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And this leads me to part one of the, the main point of this message. There's two parts, but here's point one. 
is that the saving message of Jesus Christ is indescribably precious because it offers true hope for sinners and true joy and thankfully knowing, serving, and worshiping the God who saves. And so here we are in the 21st century in central Pennsylvania. And perhaps you are in church. This may be your very first time in the church. Perhaps you've come to church a couple of times. And perhaps your life is in shambles. Perhaps your life is a disaster. Perhaps you've driven away your family because of your violent anger, your temper. Your family's in fear of you. And you've isolated yourself from them. Perhaps you are enslaved to an addiction, to pornography, to alcohol, to a certain substance. And you've tried, and you've tried, and you've tried, but there's no way of escape. Perhaps you've recently gotten out of prison. Perhaps you have, your marriage has been severely damaged by your infidelity. There's no trust. Your wife is separated from you. Your husband is separated from you. Perhaps you've peddled away all your money, leaving yourself and loved ones destitute. Perhaps you are depressed, the dark cloud is hanging over you, and you can barely muster enough strength to get out of bed in the morning. Perhaps you are overwhelmed, paralyzingly overwhelmed with guilt and shame for actions that took place several, several years ago. And it could be that you are sitting here this morning in this church service and you're thinking to yourself, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what I've seen. You, I, you have no idea the damage that I've caused in the life of other people. There is no way that God could save me. I don't belong here. I'm beyond hope. I have sinned so greatly. If this is you, the Apostle Paul saying, there is hope. There is hope. You are not too far gone. And I urge you, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, you are not beyond his saving reach. Look at Saul of Tarsus. Look at the Apostle Paul. As long as you have breath in your lungs, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in his saving work on your behalf to reconcile you to the God of the universe. There's hope. Whether you're someone who has thrown yourself headlong into a life of license, immorality, supposed freedom, and gratifying your sinful desires, or whether you are trusting in your own moralistic and legalistic efforts to obtain salvation, trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ to reconcile you to the God of the universe. Today is the day of salvation. <clears throat> yeah. And I imagine that most of us seated here are believers in Jesus Christ. I would imagine the majority of us fall into that category. And perhaps you have, like me, uh, like my father, like my mother, perhaps you have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, but perhaps he feels distant. You long for your early years as a Christian when you opened your Bible and you read it with gusto. You read it, it wasn't a chore, it was a joy. Or when you could spend uninterrupted time with the Lord in prayer. It didn't feel like a bore. 
You weren't thinking about the to-do list in your head, the football game in the afternoon. You were excited and you were eager to share the gospel message with everyone that you came into contact with. But now you feel cold. You feel lifeless. Even as a missionary, I can feel like that sometimes, I confess to you. Just going through the motions. You feel that you're going through the motions. What ought you to do? And I submit to you that if you find yourself in that place, and that when I find myself in that place, we need to reflect on where and what God has saved us from. Ask yourself, where would I be were it not for the mercy and grace that the Lord extended to me? Some of us would be in the cemetery. Others of us would be incarcerated for life. Others would be blinded in their self-righteousness. Some of us would have failed marriages. Others of us would have left a trail of relational destruction in our wake. And all of us, without exception, every single one of us, myself included, would be straight on the path to an eternity and eternal conscious torment separated from the God of the universe. Now think about the mercy and grace that the Lord has extended to you and has extended to me. And let that warm our hearts. Let that motivate us towards obedience and worship like we see in Paul's exaltation of the Lord in verse 17. And you will see that he is faithful. So that's part one of our message. I'm going to add the second part of the message here. I said that the saving message of Jesus Christ is indescribably precious because it offers true hope for sinners and true joy and thankfully knowing, serving, and worshiping the God who saves. As such, it is a message that must be defended against those who oppose it. I'm going to read once more verses 18 through 20. This is Paul, again, commissioning his young disciple, Timothy. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So we see here that following Paul's joyful words of praise and thankfulness to the Lord upon reflecting on the mercy and grace that he received, he transitions once again in verse 18 to focus on Timothy and his responsibility, his commission per verse 3 that Evan shared last week, to correct false teachings that had infiltrated and were wreaking havoc in the Ephesian church. Paul points to certain prophetic words that were spoken over Timothy and his youth to further affirm him in his special task to engage in an act of defense and propagation of the true gospel message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for sinners in the context of the Ephesian church. We don't know the exact nature of those prophetic words, but it was used to encourage Timothy that, that God is behind you and you're calling young Timothy. And so Paul uses the metaphor of warfare. He says, wage the good warfare 
in verse 19 to highlight the importance of Timothy's responsibility to guard the church against false teaching and to not only guard against, but to proclaim what is in accordance with God's word. We see uh, for Paul, the threat of false teaching in the church needed to be dealt with decisively, intentionally, much in the same way as a warrior in battle engages the enemy. The stakes were high. The stakes were high. Paul was getting ready to leave the scene. He wants to leave behind a body of authoritative teachings on how to structure and protect Christ's church. And Paul encouraged Timothy that the Spirit of God is the one who is ultimately behind his appointment to leadership in Ephesus and, and to encourage him. And so as Timothy was to engage in the warfare that was promoting sound doctrine and defending it against false teaching, he was to do so by possessing faith and a good conscience. Faith and a good conscience. Faith has to do with the correct knowledge of God. The technical word is theology. A study of God, a correct knowledge of God. And a good conscience has to do with God honoring living. A mentor of mine once said, and I'll never forget it, he said, Mike, you behave what you believe. Timothy was to proclaim and defend right thinking about God, and then from there to live out practically in the day-to-day the implications of this right thinking about God. There was a commentary I studied in preparation for this message. Duane Lifton, a theologian, said in his commentary in 1 Timothy that theological failure is oftentimes rooted in moral failure. And this is what Timothy was to avoid. And this, in fact, was the error of the false teachers who were a threat to the church in Ephesus. And two of these false teachers, as we see in verse 20, were Hymenaeus and Alexander. Hymenaeus and Alexander. These men apparently knew the truth of Jesus Christ. They apparently were known to the church. They were active in the church in a certain capacity. But by rejecting right thinking about the Lord and godly living in light of such right thinking, Paul states that these two men had gotten themselves into a disaster. They had made shipwreck of their profession of faith. As a result, as we read, Paul handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. The first time I read that, I was like, I need to consult something. I have no idea what Paul's talking about here. These are strong words, but essentially it means that Paul put these men under what we know as church discipline. Church discipline. These men were removed from the benefits of membership in the church and placed outside the world into, quote-unquote, the domain of Satan, away from the safety and the protection and the nurturing environment of a church. They were placed outside in the hopes that they would experience the destructive consequences of their sin and experience a desire to turn from their wrong thinking, teaching, and living to once again experience the warmth of true Christian community. The goal of such discipline, it's not punitive. It's not a desire of like, we just want to make your life miserable for the sake of making it miserable. Really, it's restorative. 
It's restorative. There's the desire to see the disciplined person return to faith in Jesus, to return with humility, to return with a change of mind, to want to please God and to enjoy community in the congregation. But discipline in the church also preserves the purity of the church. It preserves the purity of the congregation. And if Paul had not put these two men under church discipline, then their teachings and their lifestyles would have in one way or another corrupted the other members in the congregation. And so it was necessary that Paul place them outside of the community of faith. Uh, I am amazed It is amazing to me at how much the mainstream culture and thinking of the United States have changed in these last four and a half years. I moved to Ecuador in the fall of 2018. And honestly, I had barely given a thought about which pronoun to use when addressing a person. I had no idea what it meant to be woke Uh, I was not familiar with the idea of men using women's restrooms, vice versa. I was not familiar with the complete redefinition of the nuclear family, the people who comprise it and the roles that they have. Wasn't in my my context. (laughs) I was living here. And it appears to me that in these past years, the mainstream culture in our country is bearing the fruits, the rotten fruits of a mindset which does not believe in objective truth, much less objective truth grounded in God's authoritative word. If God's word is thrown out as our authority, as objective truth, then the door is wide open to all sorts of competing beliefs which are left up to the individual as the final authority. They go against what the Lord would have us believe and live. And at the end of the day, these beliefs are destructive. And so I think the application from this part, especially is geared towards people like my father, like Pastor Ben, Mike Bongo, um, uh, uh, the men that, that teach and preach from the front, myself even. For those who are pastors and elders like Timothy, you have a sacred commission to preach the gospel and to protect it from being tainted and distorted. The truths of the gospel message are contained in the Bible. And you, as a leader, as a teacher, has a responsibility not to go beyond what it teaches, nor take away from what it teaches when you preach, when you teach, when you provide counsel. You should be willing to take measures as hard as it may be, even the use of church discipline to guard the purity of the church. And in love to see that those who are erring in faith and in practice come to a restored relationship with the Lord and with other Christians in the community of faith. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking, I am not talking, please hear me, I'm not talking about a pharisaical uh, and self-righteous attitude that is constantly on a theological witch hunt. I believe there are several doctrines that we study uh, within evangelical theology that are, that are, there's room for disagreement, but I'm talking about blatant error, that you need to be on guard against that and not play with that, be serious with it. I'm not talking about self-righteous, I'm not talking about being a Pharisee, but rather a humble, loving, and intentional commitment out of love for the Lord and others to emphasize biblical truth in all, and I'm highlighting all aspects of life. After all, the saving message of Jesus Christ towards sinners 
is contained in the Bible and it must be treasured and it must be defended. If we don't have this message, we might as well close the church. And for those of us who are church members, for those of us who are sitting in the seats, who are listening day in and day out, as Evan really great pointed out last week that you need to be discerning. Uh, you know, not overly critical, but you need to be discerning. Hold our pastors, hold our teachers, hold me accountable. Uh, at the same time, be vigilant to let biblical truth inform the way that you love, think, and live in 21st century North America. We need to not let the constant stream of information that we receive and the various agendas within those messages from CNN, Fox News, Instagram, the internet, Facebook, Twitter, and wherever else drown out the very words of God in the Bible that are true, that are beneficial, and that promote His glory and the flourishing of mankind. And so this is for me too. We need, to be in, we need to read God's word. We need to pray for understanding. We need to surround ourselves with other believers who can point us in the right direction. And then from there, you'll be better equipped to intentionally and lovingly engage in a context and a need of truth, stability, and hope of God's word and the gospel message contained therein. You guys are going to go out from here. You'll be in your neighborhoods. You'll be in your workplaces. And even though I live in Ecuador, I follow the news here in the States. And things are spiraling out of control many times. And you have a responsibility to take God's word and to bring truth and life in a context of much confusion. And so I just want to conclude with the main points that I hope you take away from this message as we close our time this morning. The saving message of Jesus Christ is indescribably precious because it offers true hope for sinners and true joy and thankfully knowing, worshiping, and serving the God who saves. And as such, it is a message that must be defended against those who oppose it. Amen. We're going to pray for, we have the opportunity, we're going to be enjoying the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray for our, uh, following our message and for the, the elements that we will enjoy. Uh, bow your heads in, in prayer with me. Father, thank you, God, for your word. Uh, thank you, Lord. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we will live in light of the truths that we uh, just heard about. Father, thank you, Lord, for giving us your word to guide and direct us. And God, thank you for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for leaving us this uh, memory, God, this commemoration, Jesus, of the immense work that you did for us as sinners on the cross. Thank you for the elements and for what they represent because by them we are able to experience true life, eternal life with you forever. Thank you for this beloved church. I love them with all my heart. And I'm so thankful, God, for their partnership with Chris and I in the gospel ministry. Amen.